The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, including Olas Media. Olas Media presents Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Inside the Crime Files is produced by Olas Media in San Diego, California. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this podcast has traditionally taken listeners inside and behind the scenes of, some, of the investigation and the prosecution of some of the most horrific and notorious criminal cases in California's history. But the podcast also has taken a more of a later twist uh, of talking about policies and laws uh, not just in California, but beyond, and the impact that those policies and laws have on public safety and crime victims' rights. So today, I'm very honored to have three guests. I have Eric Granoff from AIA Surety, Eric Sedal from the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, and Patricia Winskunis from Crime Survivors, a victims' rights organization in Orange County. So thank you all for being here. And I probably mispronounced Eric's name again. It's okay. All right. So let me, so welcome. Okay. Everybody say hello to the listeners. Hello. Hello. Great to be here. Okay. Let me start with Eric Granoff. Did I say that correctly? Okay. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Eric? Okay. So, um, hi, my name is Eric Granoff and I am uh, vice president of corporate communications for AIA Surety. And we are a large, um, uh, surety bond uh, provider. So what we do is we write surety bonds, which are kind of guarantees for types of work. So everything from construction to commercial um, type of, to contract bonds. But a large part of what we do is also bail bonds um, in our criminal justice area. And as a um, and what a bail bond really is is basically that guarantee when someone who is accused of a crime um, gets released from jail. And they put up an amount of money, and that money is to kind of secure uh, their their return. And so um, we have about five, six thousand agents all over the country. Um, we write bail in pretty much every state that you can actually legally write surety bonds, and uh, have a tremendous track record not only as a company but as an industry in doing exactly what we're intended to do which is to get people who are released from jail prior to their trial back to jail back to the court for their trial and in essence to me that's one of the most important things you can probably do in the criminal justice system is ensure people have freedom uh, before they're accused and then to ensure that they show up to answer to the charges that they're accused of correct and i mean in a simple way it's probably as simple as i can probably put it no, very good uh, description. Eric Sadal, how about you? Hi, my name is Eric Sadal. I'm a deputy district attorney. Uh, I've been a deputy DA for about 15 years. I'm also uh, the vice president of the Association of Deputy District Attorneys, which is the organization that represents line prosecutors in Los Angeles County. So we represent them as our, as their union, but we've also been very engaged in um public discourse as it relates to criminal justice. And I think I've been talking about bail since 2017 when a lot of these issues started coming up in California. There was uh, a lot of discussion about bail reform 
And I got interested in it because I thought that the bail discussion was not was was not really data driven, but it was more ideologically driven. And, uh, you know, bail in California is a constitutional right. I don't think most people know that. It's very different from our federal system. It's very different from other systems throughout the country. And it is actually a right that a defendant has. It's not something, it's a limitation on state power. Anyhow, so I got very interested in this issue. And uh, so thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for being on. So Eric Siddall, tell us, um, before I move to Patricia, what unit are you assigned to and how big is the LADA's office? Well, traditionally, we are over. We have over a thousand prosecutors. Uh, we've had a lot of prosecutors leave uh, over the past couple of years because of the George Gascon administration, and uh, we have failure to be able to recruit and replenish our ranks. So we're we're down to about eight hundred uh, line prosecutors. Um, so, but it's still a rather large uh, office. It's I think it's the lar- it's still the largest local prosecutorial agency in the United States, probably in the world. Um, I'm in the Crimes Against Peace Officers Division, so that's the division that prosecutes any case when the victim is a police officer. So we do any, I've done everything from murders to assaults on police officers. Um, And before that, I was in the gang division. Before that, I did sex crimes and domestic violence. Excellent, all right, thank you. All right, Patricia, tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization. Hello, my name is Patricia Winskunas, and I'm the founder CEO of a nonprofit organization called Crime Survivors. And we provide support and guidance to all victims of violent crime, bringing awareness, prevention, advocacy, and healing throughout. Um, also to let victims know that they may be victimized, but that doesn't have to define who they are moving forward, um, that they can break the cycles of victimization and trauma, they can have hope to heal. And they can survive and thrive like myself personally. You know, I'm a survivor of attempted murder. My personal trainer came into my house on April 4th of 2002, um, uh, threatened to kill me and my son. Uh, Life-changing. I never would have ever thought that that would happen to me. Um, He was charged with deliberate premeditated attempted murder, burglary in the first degree, assault with a deadly weapon, criminal threats. And through our legal system, he served approximately 120 days. And what I thought was really messed up back then in our system, unfortunately, now 20 years of doing this, uh, I see that it's actually worse and, and seeing that the victims are not getting the help and the support and them taking away bail and them releasing murderers and rapists and all of that kind of stuff is just madness to me. So I feel like I've got a calling and I keep showing up even on the days that it's most difficult. Like, should I still keep doing this or should I go work someplace else on a cruise ship or what should I be doing? Right. Um, So for me, it is a calling. It's a passion. It's a purpose. Um, And so I'm continuing to do what I do because I see the victims and survivors every single day coming here to our resource center. Uh, families of murder, survivors of attempted murder, rape, domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse, elder abuse, human trafficking, and they're lost and they're hurt and they're not being heard by a system that is supposed to be protecting them. So I'm pretty passionate about it. Like I can always tell my voice starts going up because when I'm talking about it, I'm like seeing the tears in those victims that I'm serving. I'm witnessing. Seeing that the imbalance and the injustice that's happening within our communities and, and it's devastating, but 
Our organization, I'm so proud of all of the individuals. Obviously, I started the organization, but I'm just a girl trying my best to make a difference. If it wasn't for our donors and our sponsors and our supporters and our volunteers and our board members and law enforcement and community members that have come together, we would be nothing. So I'm really proud of what we have been able to do as a community coming together. And, and we're going to stay as long as we have the funds or the availability or even without funds, I'm still going to do what I do as long as I have my next breath. Well, you serve people very well, Patricia. Thank you for that introduction. Okay, so I think it, we've kind of alluded to it, but today's topic is kind of a continuation of the bail discussion that I had uh, probably a couple episodes ago with Yolo County DA Jeff Rizek, and I'm sure many of you know him, but he's done a significant amount of work on data on, on the bail industry and all that. But I want to continue on with it because I think it's such an important issue that impacts public safety, not just in California, but really beyond. So let me start with Eric from AIA Surety, because I'm going to put you last name again. Um, Eric, we've known each other for a couple of years now. Um, you kind of mentioned, you know, what is bail? What does it do? But, you know, as, as somebody that has, has, you really knowledge of what's going on across the U.S. Can you kind of just tell the listeners what what you're seeing, and and what have been the repercussions of some of these these so-called reforms? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting. And, and Eric, the other Eric, uh, made an interesting point when he talked about data, right? You know, but it kind of really drew him to this. Is here's an argument that's happening that doesn't have a lot of data associated with one side of it. And it, it's interesting just because I've given a lot of presentations around the country where we talk about this, this criminal justice debate that's happening right now is between a side that acts purely on feelings and emotions versus a side that's acting on the data that's out there that's telling them that this, this stuff does or doesn't work. And what we're seeing is a lot of the emotion and, and, you know, they call it the caring is being done under the guise of helping these various communities. And what in essence is every single policy that they've come up with around this bail reform, and this is everything from zero bail policies to um, using algorithms to try to figure out who to release to bail funds, nonprofit organizations that are letting people out irresponsibly. Every single one of these policies has, I mean, in every place they've been tried around the country, have in essence backfired. You have more crime, you have less people showing up for court in the very communities that they say these programs are being designed for. And there's a, a lack of wanting to ever admit that it's not working. And all we kind of see from our, our, our policymakers is doubling down on these policies. Um, and then doubling down in the sense that um, we just need more of it. They haven't worked because we haven't had enough resources to make them work. The, the kind of usual, I think, lines you hear from people, but we're seeing the impact everywhere. Um, you know, when you see all this retail theft, um, it's a combination of the policies that decriminalize retail theft combined with the fact that people are just going to be released because there's no mechanism to ensure that they're showing up. So 
you're making crime legal and then you're making the punishment side of it not happen because people don't have to show up for it. So, I mean, it really is the, the perfect storm of really bad ideas with really bad execution while the rest of us sit around and just get to be victims for all this stuff and not feel like anyone really cares about us. And the concept of, you know, and, and you know, Patricia and I are, are good friends and, you know, it, it pains me every day when I hear the stories of um, defendants being treated like the victims. Right. You know, mayor, the, you know, the mayor of New Orleans showing up to a, a, a case and sitting with the defendant and not the victim. I mean, that's been, I think, one of the biggest tra travesties of all this is that there's been a shift in, in who really victims are. And they're not the people committing the crimes. I'll tell you that. It's the people um, that Patricia works with every day that are the ones that are really being affected by this stuff. But, you know, you think about the balance, you don't necessarily think about it being a piece in this puzzle. But it really it, it really is an important piece that when you remove that, the puzzle doesn't make sense anymore. And it all falls apart. Well, and I think the other part is that um, what you've alluded to is that people just don't show up for court. So, you know, let's say you have a, a person that goes, we see all these viral videos of people ripping off, ripping off, ripping off. And if you have a mechanism or you don't have a mechanism to, you know, to hold them after their 10th time, then what message are we sending that just keep stealing, keep stealing? And that's, I don't know if you track, um, I don't know if the bail industry tracks, what is the percentage of people that actually show up? when they've been released on a... It, it, it's interesting because, you know, we, we do our best, but the the data, they make it impossible to to come up with. I mean, you look at New Jersey. New Jersey talks about, you know, they, they did the reforms, you know, what, five years ago now where they eliminated uh, bail. They changed their state constitution. And all they've talked about is the success of their program. Yet there's no data showing it. In fact, they just came out a couple of weeks ago and says the crime's out of control. They didn't they didn't blame it on the fact that they got rid of bail. They're just saying that we need more money now to make these programs work. We need to actually start detaining more people, which is that's a little bit of the scary part of this too, right? Here, let's let everybody out, create a crime wave. Now we're going to go ahead and detain everybody. But you can't really do either of those. That's why we need to figure out what the middle ground is. But I mean, there's places in Harris County. Where these policies are creating, I mean, you're talking 80% of the people aren't showing up for court. And then the other side will say, yeah, convictions are down. Of right. course they are, because no one's showing up for court. So Exactly. It's like saying that crime is down when people don't report crime anymore, right? Doesn't mean yeah. crime is down, just means people don't report it. So you so, mentioned Harris County, Eric, and I want to ask, Harris County is in Houston, Texas, and... Um, if my memory's correct, a few years back, um, there was a big push for bail reform and uh, implementing kind of more zero bail types of policies. And then the DA of that county kind of came out with a, a kind of an earth-shattering study, right? That kind of went well, into well, the ideology of what they were trying to do. But you need to kind of go back and understand why that, it, it, was, it was started with a lawsuit in federal court, right? that their bail system was unconstitutional and that they were, you know, the, the whole money system was unconstitutional and bail schedules. And people don't need, need to understand that that lawsuit was brought because one of the county commissioners invited them to come and sue Harris County because of what the system was done. That then unraveled everything through a consent decree, basically saying, we're going to let everybody out. 
And in order to tell you how well it's working, we'll assign something called a monitor and a monitor will do a report of everything. Well, the monitor comes out and says, we only have a 20% failure to appear rate. Yet Kim Og, a very, very progressive district attorney that ran on bail reform, she saw like bells and whistles went off. She said, well, hold on. What we're seeing happen in Harris County is not a 20% failure to appear rate. The data she had, she was, I think it's probably above 50%, uh, you know, if anything. Well, then the police department, the, the uh, Harris County police did a study of one criminal court and found that it was not 50%, but it was upwards around 70%. <laughs> and then the, the bail industry in, or the professional bondsman of Texas took the methodology used by the Houston police and applied it to all 16 criminal misdemeanor courts and found out it was almost 82% failure to appear. Now think, I mean, think about that. If you're right. 82% of the people were never going to trial to, to, to answer to their charges. I mean, the crime is not a, a criminal justice system. It's not. Right. It's not a criminal justice system. So let me move to Eric's at all. And, um, Eric, you're from Los Angeles. I hate to say the epicenter of kind of the chaos of, of California right now, but maybe just give the listeners kind of perspective of what's going on in LA in the last couple of years and uh, what's what's going to happen in, coming soon with LA bail policies in your courthouse. Okay. Well, I think, you know, for listeners to kind of understand where Los Angeles is, first of all, you have to understand what bail is and what it, what it's not. Bail is actually a right for the defendant. Um, it is a constitutionally protected right of the defendant to be able to be bailed out in most offenses. That type of right does not exist with the federal constitution. Uh, the federal constitution doesn't give a, a defendant a right to bail. Right. They're so either in or out, right? They're either, well, so what happens in the federal system, because there's no constitutional right, there are certain classes of, of felonies that are, there's a presumption that you will be detained, right? So no matter what happens, you will be detained in that case, unless you can show that you're not a public safety risk and you're not a or, and that you are not a flight risk. California is different. California says there are very few cases where you can detain someone. And those are basically capital murder cases. In other words, cases where you murder someone in such an egregious fashion that you are eligible for the death penalty. So those cases, you are not eligible for bail. And then there's uh, there's some carve outs within the Constitution to allow for detention. And Eric kind of alluded to detention, uh, which means that you you are not eligible for bail and that you will be detained in custody until your trial. So that's kind of the California framework. So the courts have three options. You can detain on very rare cases. You can make someone eligible for bail on the majority of cases. And then you can have what's called site and release, which is basically what happens when you get a traffic ticket, someone, you know, the officer writes you a traffic ticket for Know, blowing a stop sign and they give you a ticket and they say you have to come to court or you have to pay this by a certain time period. That's site and release. Traditionally, in Los Angeles County, um, we always had uh, 
most offenses were available offenses. So if you're an accessory to murder, you're an accessory to murder or charged with accessory to murder, you would have to post about a million dollars in cash bail. Actually, a million dollars or or a percent well, of that. Well, you would. I mean, you would have to post a million dollars, whether you use the bail uh, industry to to get to that million dollars, or you have a million dollars cash. That's up to you. But that's where the bail industry comes in. The bail industry would. Would say okay you have to give us 10 percent of that million dollars we will put up the million dollars and we will make sure that you come to court okay. so those are those are kind of the three options in california very few offenses you can detain people on most offenses are bailable offenses very few and then there are also offenses like most misdemeanors you are released on your own recognizance and so in 2017, I kind of did an analysis because this is when the bail reform started moving up. And, there was, and the number that was thrown out was that 66% of people in custody are there for bailable offenses and are there because they're awaiting trial, right? And that's a huge number when you think about that, except that number doesn't really exist. That number never existed. And that number was thrown out by the Judicial Council. And I'm not sure where they got that number from, because when I looked at the largest counties in Los, in California, mainly Los Angeles County, we looked at San Diego County, that number was extremely small. It was about 25% of the people in jail were there for pretrial offenses. In other words, they weren't there because they're violating their probation. They're not there because they're violating their parole. They're simply waiting for trial. Of that, of, of that universe, of that universe of 25%, less than 1% were there for drug offenses. Almost 1% were there for theft offenses. So it wasn't like there was this huge population of, of you know, poor people who were just working and made a mistake that were in jail. That, that narrative... And I, again, I think Eric talked about this. It's, it's frustrating because that narrative never happened. It was, you know, you would get one story. You get a person saying, this happened to me. And no one was able to verify, first of all, whether that story was true. And no one was able to ever say that that was what was really happening within the criminal justice system. So there was this big lie that was fed that, that, um, the, the, you know, the poor and the working, working people of Los Angeles County were being, were being, you know, rounded up, put in jail and never given an opportunity to get out. The vast majority of people who were in our jail systems awaiting trial were actually violent offenders. People right. charged with murder, attempted murder, assaults, things like that. Violent offenses against people. That's who was actually in our, uh, jail population who are awaiting trial. So first we just have to get rid of the myth that this is, somehow is this oppressive system that puts poor people who are just, you know, stealing diapers in jail. That's not who is in jail. That was not who was in jail before bail reform happened uh, in 2017. And that's not who is in jail now. So the question that I think that people should have is why this urgency to get rid of everything? Because right now, what's going to happen in October is if you 
commit a, a theft offense. In LA. You, We're talking about LA County. In Los Angeles. If you commit a theft offense, you commit, if you're an accessory to murder, if there's a whole host of, of, of crimes, child pornography, you're possessing child pornography, you're distributing child pornography, you will get what is called sight and release. In other words, you will be treated the same way as if you committed a traffic violation. And what does that mean? Some guy goes to Target, goes and ransacks Target, gets arrested at Target. They're literally going to write him a ticket at Target, give him that ticket and say, okay, we'll see you in 10 minutes after you rob the store again. I mean, that, that or burglarize the store again. I mean, that's that's how absurd this whole system is getting. We are literally... Well, that's, assuming that tickets, that's assuming that they're going to write the ticket because we all know that at some point law enforcement is so frustrated by the lack of consequences yeah. that many of them question why even write the ticket because they're not going to show up, they're going to steal again, or if they do show up, they're, they're going to get out immediately. And, and that's I, the frustrating part for many folks. Yeah, and I think why why would you make the arrest? Why would you actually take the risk of arresting someone if you know it's for for nothing? You know, I, I've talked to many officers, and they're literally they catch a guy with a gun. They're literally writing the report as the guy's walking out of the jail, and that was happening over and over and over again. You know, right now Los Angeles County, we have about thirteen thousand unfiled cases. And a lot of those cases are uh, the result of, you know, this catch and release policy. So what do you think? I mean, so these new rules are going into place in, in Los Angeles, you say, in October. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, Patricia and I talked about this before we even started the podcast, which is you keep showing up for work wondering if it can, if it can possibly get worse. And the question is, is what do you, what do you predict, Eric's at all, is, is happening in L.A. County with these new rules? Look, I, I think it's it may not affect violent crime, but what it will do is affect quality of life crime, and it's going to affect a lot of small businesses. Uh, you know, it's, like I said, the, the targets, the mom-and-pop shops in the neighborhoods, those places are just going to get ransacked, and no one's going to care anymore because you can't put them in jail. You can't, no matter how many times a person goes in and steals that person will never go into custody until way into the process when they get convicted. And maybe even then they won't go in. So you can go in and rob a store 20 times a day and nothing will happen to you other than you will collect tickets, maybe. Well, the other thing is, is in, you know, look around what's happening on the streets of our communities, particularly the urban areas. I mean, it's the drug addiction homelessness issue is without a doubt out of control. And, and sadly, a lot of them feed their addiction through theft. And if you don't have, I mean, that's the question I keep asking is we all want people to get the help and the drug treatment and mental health treatment. But if there's no mechanism to do that, I mean, I mean, Patricia, you see it every day, right? Coming into work. Every day it's, you know, every day I even come into my office now. I mean, just a couple of days ago, there was a homeless man that you could see that was under the influence, mental health issues. He's running down the, the roadway completely naked. You know, the ambulance is out here all the time uh, picking up people that were either hit or just passed out on the street. 
Um, but I say, what about the victim? Like we never include for some reason, not we, cause we do of course, but like when they're passing these new laws, when they're coming up with all of this fabricated, detailed, factual statistics that they, I don't know, pull out of the sky someplace that I don't feel are factual at all. Um, with all, you know, agree to disagree with respect is what I say, but we don't, they don't include the victim at the table. Or we've gotten to a place now where the offender and the criminal, the one committing the crime, is now considered the victim or the survivor to the system. And then they're provided more services, more guidance, more help, more support. And the victim and the survivors are left with what? They don't want to report. They don't want to report anymore because they're like, well, what am, you know, like I have a rape victim and she, she said to me, why am I going to put my family and myself through this when he's probably going to do no time? You know, I don't want to go through that. I'm not going to report it. And that's devastating and sad when you think about, you know, rape victims, sexual assault victims, uh, when you think about families that don't want to report child abuse, uh, domestic violence victims that are, are going to stay with the, the abuser because, they're so afraid that this person is just going to get released and the slap on the hand and nothing's going to happen. Where do you think that abuser is going to go? They're going to go right back to abuse again. So Patricia, let me ask you this. There's a thing in California called Marcy's law, which is a constitutional amendment that was passed. Can you kind of, you know, explain what it is for the listeners, but also kind of what it is related to bail? Right. Well, you know, and, and how is that going to be affected when you talk about bail, right? When, when we have Marcy's law, but then all of these new laws pass, which then kind of like take out Marcy's law. So then it's not going to work. Right. And so, you know, a lot of people worked extremely hard to get Marcy's law passed here in the state of California, which it passed in 2008. I'm really proud of being a part of that, um, you know, small piece to that puzzle um, going out there and and trying to get it passed. Part of my personal case was actually written into Marcy's Law. Um, you know, the original person that had written um, Marcy's Law with a lot of other individuals was actually Steve Ibsen, uh, Steve Twist, uh, Todd Spitzer, um, a lot of other individuals, uh, Lawanda Hawkins that worked so hard on getting it passed in the state, Jane Buffard, uh, Justice for Murder Children, Justice for Homicide Victims. Tell uh, us what it does, though. What does yeah. it do? Well, I mean, obviously there's seven rights under Marcy's law, right? And, you know, it's always amazing for number one is to be treated with fairness and respect, uh, which I'm not sure why you have to put that, um, to be reasonably protected by the defendant um, and persons acting on behalf of the defendant, um, to have safety and your safety protected, to be able to attend parole hearings, um, to refuse interviews if you don't want to participate, to be noticed of all court proceedings, that you're able to participate in that, you're able to give a victim impact statement, you're able to get your belongings back in a timely fashion, um, you're able to interact with the probation department for pre-sentencing and investigations, um, you're, you're able to receive uh, upon request um, any information, um, any portions of your confidentiality is supposed to be confidential of the case, your name, your, you know, where you reside, things like that, uh, to be informed uh, upon request of the conviction, the sentencing, uh, any incarcerations, any releases, to be able to be provided with restitution. 
Um, and a lot of individuals don't even know that they can submit for restitution and that can be open-ended as well for any out-of-pocket expenses that you may have. Um, and to be able to just be participating in that proceeding, right? right. Um, to be notified if somebody's going to be released, to be notified. And be, actually, the good thing, too, is we've seen in several of our cases to tell our victims is to go in to assert your Marcy's Law rights, which you do have to assert them in order to get them. Um, assert your rights and please ask, you know, say, Your Honor, I would like, I'm very afraid of my life. Can you make sure that bail is available? Can you make sure that there's a higher bail because I'm concerned for my safety and the community's safety? Um, unfortunately, now with a lot of places, especially like in LA, take away bail. What does that victim have? What, a, what if that individual is going to be able to not show up to court? What does that give the victim, right? right. Uh, it's so imbalanced right now. And I feel like as great as Marcy's Law is, and we need it, and we need to have all victims assert it, we need to make sure they get it. If they don't get it, there's nothing they can really do about it. Right. Right. So, um, can I just jump in on one ahead, thing sorry, that I think is kind of funny about how the, the, the new bail schedule that is going to happen in, in Los Angeles? So, if you it, try to influence testimony, in other words, you go and try to influence the testimony of a victim you get sight and released, right? Because it's a non-serious, non-violent felony. If you threaten a judge though, which is also a non-serious, non-violent felony, you actually will be uh, eligible for bail. So it's, it's just kind of interesting how the judges have created a system where if you threaten them, yeah. you get, uh, you get custody. You try to influence the testimony of a victim. Yeah. Not so much for you. But, but I think also what, to chime in here, I mean, and I think, you know, Patricia, you know, is, you know, Eric's talked about the L.A. County case and what's happened there with this bail schedule. You know, it's really important for the citizens of California and L.A. County specifically to know that their elected officials, L.A. City, L.A. County and the state of California all refused to defend the case. Right. Patricia has tried to intervene in the case and has been denied the judge saying victims don't have a say in bail matter. I mean, this you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. This is being Eric talks about, you know, why jails are that the, the population of people that are in jail pre, which is pre-trial people are supposed to be in jail. When you say 70% of our jails are filled with people pre-trial, yeah, because that's what they're designed for. But it's policy that has changed all this. Policy with AB 109 that took convicted prisoners and moved them to the county jails. Right. No room left. So you can't put these. But so how do you how do you get rid of the you decriminalize so these things aren't jailable anymore? And so all these policies, bad policies, have led us to this place now. And now you're a place where your elected officials aren't even defending the citizens of California against these. It's it's unbelievable. It's, yes. And I think it's important because we can talk a lot about policies, but when you see the real life examples. So I think, um, Eric, from the bail industry, you're very familiar with the Kate Tibbetts case from Sacramento. Uh, Patricia, I'm sure you have case examples of victims from people that were let out on either zero bail or a site, a ticket basically, or Eric's at all. I mean, I think that's, 
you know, one of the things that sadly I've said this probably rather sarcastically is I don't, I think people don't, uh, they don't engage and get engaged in public safety issues until they're personally affected. And then they start wondering, what, what do you mean? How can this happen? Why was this person released? So maybe, you know, if you guys can give some examples, because that to me, policy is important to talk about, but we have to see the real life examples. You know, it's like the, the father that recently said to me, he said, you know, I, I have to tell you honestly, Patricia, he said, I was all for like no bail. I was all for like, listen, we're putting too many people in to be incarcerated. We need to release them. We need to let them out, give them another chance. He said that I was that person until this individual was released early from a violent crime. And three days later, he came and killed my 16 year old daughter. Oh, my gosh. And he said, I... I completely now see things in a different eyelight. He said, I did not see it before. Like he said, people would say things and I'd be like, oh my gosh, that's inhumane. We're keeping people incarcerated, blah, blah, blah. But he said, now I totally understand it and I totally get it. And so, you know, Amory, I totally agree with you because I think a lot of people, it's out of sight. It's too sad. It's dark. It's dreary. And if they don't know it themselves, and in all honesty, my thing is, is like when people will say to me, oh, Patricia, you're just paranoid. People are not molesting children. People are not going to do this. You're just paranoid. And I, my answer to them now is this. I am really happy that you think I'm paranoid because that means to me that you don't know the walk and journey that I have went through or those that I serve. You don't know that. And I would wish that upon nobody. But there is a difference between being paranoid and living in what we're living in this climate. Absolutely. How about you, the other two, Eric's about like case, case examples? Well, I mean, Eric probably knows more of them than I do, but I mean, just a couple that pop into my mind. I mean, yeah, Mary Tibbetts was unbelievable, you know, and, and the fact that that had to happen in Sacramento, I mean, it's almost, I hate saying this, if that doesn't happen, I think Bale's probably, SB 262 passes. The only thing that stopped it was the fact that this heinous crime happened right in Sacramento the week they were voting on it. We've got to remember right after the whole population of California voted to keep bail through Prop 25. But Mary Tibbs is a horrible case. You have Rosalie Cook in Texas, an 80 year old that was going to a Walgreens. And she was basically a guy comes to rob her that had been out arrested 70 times, seven zero times and released every time. This guy's a violent guy. He was out in the streets. He kills her in a Walgreens when she's trying to buy her granddaughter uh, a car. I mean, you, it's like this, you can have story after story. Um, you have the Guajardo, uh, Caitlin Guajardo, a pregnant woman who her violent boyfriend, everyone knew this guy was bad. He had threatened her. He had killed her dog. They released him on a PR bond, which is zero bail. And he, he murdered her and her unborn child. I mean, this stuff is happening. It, it, it doesn't get the highlights that it should be, that the public knows this stuff is, and it's directly linked to these policies. But it, it's happening more cases than, than, than people realize. And it's not, we see the retail thefts, but I mean, that stuff escalates so quickly. And if I learn I can get away 70 times with something, why aren't I just going to keep pushing it? You know, and I think that's the, the mentality of these guys. If you don't, if there's no punishment, it's just getting to get worse and worse. Right. Eric Siddall, how about you in L.A.? What are you seeing on the streets, kind of? 
So there are several open cases right now, so I can't give the names of these cases, but there are several open murder cases where the person was either they were arrested for assault with 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 a weapon. In one case, it was a knife. And that person then eventually goes and commits murder. Uh, another case where the person had been arrested with a firearm several times and had been released uh, on their own recognizance or the case had not even been filed because of the, the huge backlog in the DA's office and then goes and kills someone with a firearm. Um, so what we're seeing is, it, is that people are getting arrested. The police are doing their job. I don't know, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing that they're still doing their job considering uh, how little effect it actually has in the long run. But they are doing their job. They're arresting people. They're citing people. They're filing the, these reports. They're filing these cases. And these people are getting released. And then they go out and commit more serious and violent crimes. And we're seeing that uh, with either professional career criminals but we're also seeing that with, in terms of mental health diversion, where people are being released uh, because we don't have any type of infrastructure at all to take care of those who are mentally ill and they're committing crimes. And the, the only, you know, it seems that the default for every policy problem, for every criminal justice so solution, the default right now is to release. Right. And release and release early. It release early and often. Um, and, you know, what's I think what's kind of the untold story about what happened from 1996 to about 2009 during the great crime decline, what actually was happening was that the, the number of people going into the prison system was actually decreasing over the years. And why is that? Because if you really want to make if you really want to lower prison populations, you know what you do? Let them out. No, you lower the crime rate. If you lower the crime rate, there are less people going into prison. And that will, that's what was happening from 1996 to about 2008 because of the great crime decline. Because, and it was pretty much, it's a, it's kind of a miracle, right? Like we were, you know, we went from like, uh, you know, in Los Angeles County, we were having like 2,500 murders a year. And we went down to, you know, 400, 300. Those, that huge crime decline actually made the prison population eventually shrink. So if you want less people in prison, you have a lower crime rate. Releasing people is only going to increase the crime rate and eventually increase the amount of people that actually are in prison. Right. And it's interesting, I think, if you look at what's happening we're in this phase of like the pendulum, like release everybody. But it, it, the, the scary thing that can happen though, is what we're seeing. I mean, the federal system, Eric referred to it earlier, right? I mean, how many people were detained in the federal system when they first kind of created these policies back in the 80s? It was like 17% of the people were detained. Now the detention rate's over 70%. Yeah. But people were getting so fed up with crime. I mean, look what Wisconsin did. Wisconsin, the people of Wisconsin literally just voted to eliminate their constitutional right to bail in Wisconsin. They gave judges the ability to lock people up whenever they want. And it literally had to change the Wisconsin constitution to do that. I mean, think about people being 
not really realizing what they've just done. They've given up a constitutional right to the government to say, we can, we can detain you whenever we want now. That's just, you can't have that on one side and you can't have the release. We have to find what is that middle ground that, I mean, the scales, right? It's supposed right. to be balanced. What is that middle ground? And right now we're doing a really poor job. We're, we're put our hand all the way on one side. We put our hand all the way on the other. No one wants to really focus in that middle area. And that's where we have to operate because if we don't, it's all going to go one way or the other. Neither you one know, is good. You know, Eric makes a, a really great point because I think that a lot of these criminal justice advocates think of like the, the goal is to abolish bail. Well, when you abolish bail, you increase detention. Right. Uh, and that's what will happen. So be careful for what you wish for, because if, you're, if your idea is that you want people out of custody, in the long run, I think that will change, and it will change in the opposite fa uh, fashion. There are going to be more people in custody, and we will increase detentions. Now, look, I'm all for detaining serious and violent felons, people who are who are committing violent felonies. I think those people should be detained. But, you know, when you radically change a system and you don't have an alternative plan, you can radicalize the entire system. And that's what happened in the federal system where the detention rates went up by huge numbers because of the presumption of detention. I mean, I think you mentioned the word infrastructure, and I think it goes across all of these various policies, whether it's bail, whether it's early releases, <clears throat> whether it's diversion. You know, I've said this many times. If you don't have an adequate infrastructure in place to get people the rehab they need <clears throat> or the supervision they need, then we're failing. We're failing victims, Patricia, because we're, we're saying all these great things of like, oh, yeah, we've reduced the crime rate and all these other things, and we've reduced the prison population. But to what, to, to what end? But where is all the money going to? Because all the money was supposed to be for early releases, rehabilitation. That was all going to go towards helping individuals to be able to get mental health, mental wellness, uh, job training, all of that kind of stuff. But follow the trail. And, and, and again, where is the help for the victims and survivors? Like we can't forget the victims and survivors. We want to make sure that they have their voice. We want to make sure I know victims and survivors because I've done a, uh, my own survey where I got the statistics back to be able to ask them, do you believe in bail? Do you think that the bail system should be working? Should, should individuals have to make bail to get out? Victims and survivors, they believe in bail. They want bail. They want the individuals to show up to court. They want them to be held accountable for the crime. Uh, that's what victims and survivors want. So whatever anybody else is saying, I'm not seeing it and witnessing it, that they're saying victims don't want it. They want people released uh, because they don't. And maybe they're brainwashing them or they're, they're talking to them in a certain way to think so. But we need to also make sure that no matter what's happening within the system, that I, I, my goal and objective every day is to let victims and survivors know no matter what happens, we want you to, we want to be by your side to report the crime, no matter what happens through the legal system, to know that they're not alone, that individuals within the bail system, district attorney, deputy district attorneys for the most part, 
Uh, there are some that don't support victims, but uh, the, the majority do. Uh, law enforcement is there. They care about you. So no matter what happens to the legal system, report and, and know that you have referrals and resources and support to get through this. Uh, because I, I want victims to not feel shame or blame or guilt or judgment in 2023 or beyond this year. So you guys have, all of you, I think, have mentioned kind of this idea of the pendulum or the balance or the scales. I mean, I think those of us that have kind of worked in the trenches have seen that erosion over the last 10 or so plus years. But, but the question is, is, you know, for the listeners, how do we get back to that? What, what, what can they do or what can the citizens of whether it's California or beyond, you know, what, you know, what, what do you suggest they do to help kind of engage in this topic? I, I always, I'll jump in real quick. I, I like to think it's common sense. I think we have to use a little bit more common sense as uh, voters, as just people. Um, when you see studies come out that say that, when you forgive misdemeanor crime, um, people are less likely then to go commit misdemeanor crimes. If you're not taking a step back and going, huh, that doesn't make sense. Or when there's a policy out there called safe schools and neighborhoods and you don't read that policy and, and all that's done is decriminalized drug and, and that, I mean, there's, there's a common sense component to this that I think, and I mean, so I'm hoping people are waking up to. I mean, that poll like I just sent you the other day, Anne-Marie, about how 71% of people think that misdemeanor crimes should be punished. And it, it was interesting, 65% of Democrats thought that misdemeanor crimes should be punished. So it's everybody. It's not right. a you know, Democrat versus a Republican issue. And I think that's the step back we all need to take is I think there's too much voting on ideology and political stance as opposed to common sense. Whereas well, I, and Eric, it's at all mentioned you know, these numbers on quality of life crimes. And, and, you know, most of the time, violent crime affects a very small percentage of the population. But where I think people are, quote, waking up now, and Eric said, oh, maybe you can talk about this, is the quality of life crimes, because that's what's impacting their lives every day as they drive into work and they see, you know, what Patricia described as seeing. Yeah, I think the, you know, in Los Angeles, the homeless issue has really gotten people uh, up in arms about what is going on because, you know, one of the problems that we have right now is that we won't in, in cities that the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office is, is prosecuting crimes, we won't prosecute trespass crimes, right? And that's extremely problematic because if you can't enforce trespassing, then you can't enforce someone's property rights. Someone can literally go in and try and start, uh, you know, living in the ele or the, um, stairwell shaft of your apartment building and you can't get rid of them. Right. I mean, the police will remove them, but they can go back in immediately after because the DA's office won't enforce any type of, uh, trespassing laws. We won't enforce, basic quality of life crimes. And those basic quality of life crimes really erode uh, an urban experience. You know, we live in Los Angeles is an urban area. It really, you know, it's, it depends upon our public spaces being safe for everyone. And when our public spaces no longer become safe, 
people start to retreat into their private spaces. And when that happens, that's when real violent crime starts to take over because you have less eyes on the street. You have less engagement in public spaces. And so one thing we need to do is we need to retake our public spaces. We also need to have elected officials who are going to enforce the laws. You know, I think Eric brought up the case in, in, uh, in Los Angeles where the Los Angeles Police Department and the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department refused to engage in, in the uh, litigation as it relates to bail. And I think if they had actually engaged, they would have been able to tell this judge that, in fact, very few people are in custody for low-level crimes, that the majority of people are in custody for violent and serious felonies. They would have been able to give the data to be able to contradict what the other side was doing. And people need to understand that the courts right now and the legislature right now and our board of supervisors and our district attorney's offices are being overtaken by a very small group of ideologues who are not, they're, they're not really, they're not interested in advancing the public safety argument. They are very much at their core, what they really want to do is abolish the prison system right. and hope and pray that somehow by abolishing the prison system, that It'll your streets are going to become safer. Yeah, and that's just, I mean, it's insanity at its core, really. Um, so we're almost towards the end, but I wanted to kind of end with um, really Patricia because, you know, from a victim victim perspective, victim's rights perspective, what do you, what would you like the listeners to kind of walk away with as their message? You know, what could they do or, you know, help promote victim's rights? I think they have to first and foremost listen and hear from individuals like Eric and Eric and you, Anne-Marie, and myself and, and nonprofits and victims groups that are in the gutters of sorts out into the streets, out into the community and get involved and show some compassion, some kindness, some care, donate money to nonprofits that are in the community working so hard to help victims and survivors and to really realize we're not here to scare you. Um, we don't want you to be a victim yourself, but if you yourself were victimized, your loved one, your family, your children were victimized, you'd want to be able to know that there's a system in place for bail, that law enforcement is going to show up when you call 911, that there is going to be an arrest and charges filed, that the district attorney's office is going to fight for victims and for survivors and family members. Um, and, and it can happen to you. So I think to be able to get involved into the community um, again and just show that you want to help and pay attention to what you're voting for. Reach out to your elected officials. Um, let them know that victims matter, that you, your house should be your sanctuary, that you don't want to be burglarized and robbed and threatened when you go to a local 7-Eleven. You don't want to have to go to the grocery store and wait, you know, 15 minutes for a clerk to come over and open up a cabinet to give you deodorant or hairspray or laundry soap. You don't want to have to be in a, uh, a JCPenney store or a Macy's and somebody comes in with a gun or in a school. Those things are our reality. So please talk to your elected officials and let them know that public safety matters, that your family matters. 
um, and pay attention to what you're voting for. I cannot say it enough. You know, like like Eric mentioned, you know, I always tell people now when you're voting and not to be political and not to be whatever, but when you're voting and you see in the first line that says there's going to be better schools and safer streets, that should be an automatic red flag that you should right. keep reading down because that means they're going to be taking away things like bail or releasing murderers or molesters or whatever that may be. So I ask people to get involved, pay attention, don't be afraid because we all have one life, but if we don't be a voice for the voiceless, we don't be a voice for ourselves, then what's what, what's going to happen? That's why we're in the place that we're in today and why we don't have a balanced uh, system or balancing the scales of justice in a sort. So if you get involved, the pendulum will swing back and hopefully balance out a little bit. And, and I always say I'm not trying to take anything away. Um, I believe in rehabilitation with the exception of two crimes, intentional murder and molestation of a child. But all others, I believe the system should be there. So I tell people today, please get involved. Please pay attention and please be a voice. Excellent. Very good advice. How about the other two, Eric's as a last shout out to the listeners? I, I, I echo everything Patricia just said. It's, you know, stop Stop looking at political parties, vote, vote common sense and vote policies that make sense, regardless of, of what your political affiliation is. And I think we need to we've lost our way in that way. And I think we're all at the end of the day, we all want the same things. We all want to be able to sleep in our house at night, knowing that no one's going to break in and hurt us. And that if someone ever did, that there'd be an appropriate punishment for that to prevent it from ever happening to anybody else again. And I, I, we all want the same stuff. And I think we all have to start as communities, as citizens, realizing how much alike we all are and, and, and really start driving and electing people that are going to support what we really want. Excellent. Eric's at all? You know, I think the, the other thing, because we, we, we you know, rightfully say, so we, and Patricia is a really good advocate on this, you know, in terms of violent crime. We always focus on violent crime and the effects of violent crime because that matters the most in terms of our criminal justice system. But we also have to remember that, you know, there was a case, for example, where uh, this gardener's truck was stolen and it was used in a in a getaway and the police eventually caught the guy. The man destroyed this gardener's truck. OK, his entire livelihood, right. that entire family's livelihood was in that truck. And when his truck got destroyed and everything in it got destroyed, his livelihood got destroyed. And that man doesn't have insurance to be able to recoup those costs. Eventually, you know, he will be entitled to victim restitution in two or three years. Restitution that he will never receive because the guy will, will never be able to pay off this thing. So when we think of these so-called victimless crimes, which are mainly property crimes, there is a real impact and it impacts the most vulnerable, the hardest. And so we have to think of not just about what's happening in terms of violent crime, but we also need to think about that gardener whose livelihood was just eliminated because of the acts of a criminal that we just don't anymore consider to be important. And we consider that a victimless crime now. Well, very good advice. I want to just... Uh, end by saying thank you to all three of you, to the two Eric's and Patricia. Um, you guys are all doing amazing work 
Um, I would note for the listeners that we've done this remotely, so there may be a little bit difference in the voice. But to our listeners, I want to just thank you all for joining in. And you can find more podcasts on InsideCarnFiles.com and you can join our mailing list. So thank you all for joining me today. Thank you. Inside the Crime Files is produced by Olas Media in San Diego, California. To listen to more episodes, visit InsideTheCrimeFiles.com. 